Hi, you're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. This is where we have insightful conversations with some of Africa's leaders, um, thinkers, doers who are reimagining the new Africa, who are working towards developing the continent, who are trying to change Africa for its good. And that's the name Change Africa podcast. My name is Isaac Kojede Noabwa. I am here with my co-host Daniel Merki. And today we are going to have another exciting conversation with the people at Development Reimagined. We have with us Patrick Anam and Hannah Reader. So I'm going to talk briefly about who these um, astute individuals are, and then we'll start our conversation with them. So Development Reimagined is an independent international development consultancy working with clients to develop innovative solutions to challenging poverty and environmental issues. And their headquarters in, is in Beijing, but they also have offices in Kenya and the UK. They are focused on development, diplomacy, environmental, and public relations. And they have experts all over the world, which is focused on their mission to deliver sustainable development and poverty reduction in a dynamic and complex world. And we are joined by Hannah Reader, the CEO of Development Reimagined, who is a former diplomat and economist with 20 years of experience, named one of 100 influential Africans in 2021. She's also a senior associate for the Africa program of the Center for Strategic International Studies, CSIS, sits on the board of the Environmental Defense Fund and is a member of UAE's International Advisory Council on the New Economy prior to her work at DR, which is Development Reimagined. Ms. Rita led the United Nations Development Program in China to help scale it up and improve its cooperation with other developing countries, including Africa. She has also played various advisory roles for the UN and the OECD and quoted the seminal stand review of the economics of climate change in 2006, which is a very important document, actually one of the very first documents that kind of brought up a comprehensive report on climate change. Um, Patrick Anam, who's also joining us, is a senior trade analyst, and he also works with Development Reimagined as an international policy and trade law expert, and he's based in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, Patrick recently was the lead author for Development Reimagined's Africa-China Relations Report titled from China, Africa to Africa, China, a blueprint for a green and inclusive continent-wide strategy towards China. So as you can see, we have very astute audience and we are in the presence of diplomacy royalty, I would say. <laughs> Thank you very much, China. Um, our guests from China. Hannah, where are you exactly now? Right now, I'm in the UK, um, but I am usually traveling around. Um, I'm not in China at the moment, uh, partly because of COVID family reasons. Um, as you know, there's quite significant, strong COVID controls in China um, from the beginning, um, and they're just coming back up again. So um, it's not, it's, it's quite uh, challenging at the moment to go back in and out of China. So I'm staying out for the moment so that um, I can also be able to go to the continent um, for various meetings and, and so on. Um, much easier to do that from, from the UK, for instance. 
Yeah. So I would like to start a conversation on the note of why development reimagine started. I know I've given a brief of that, um, um, but the listeners might not know the transition from your work from the UNDP to starting development reimagine. So if you can kindly give us a brief um, of that background. Sure, um, I'm very happy to. Uh, it was it's an inter- it's been an interesting journey. Um, I think one of the I think there's a few key reasons why um, I felt that there was a need to have a consultancy like ours um, in the international development space. Um, one was that we that at that time this was around 2016. Um, yeah, there have been lots of debates and discussions about China as an international actor, um, trying to bring China into lots of different discussions on development and so on. And we were seeing, you know, we've been seeing that the relationship in particular between China and Africa has been growing um, since from from a long time ago, but in particular since 2000. And that was what Patrick was talking about in his report and what we see the what we see for the future. Um, but at, while that was growing, what I also perceived in my work as, as a development practitioner was that many, whether it was donors, whether it was recipient governments working with China, many did not really understand China as a development actor. Didn't understand, for example, you know, how do the state owned enterprises work? How do, how does the government make decisions? All these sorts of things. And we still don't, you know, part of our job. At the, quite often I spend time, um, explaining some of these points to, to others, um, to our clients. But many, they're, they're really, especially in the international development sector, very little understanding. Yet China was having this huge impact on development. Um, you know, roads, rail, bridges, you know, all of these things, stadiums, et cetera. But very few people really knew you know, know how to, how, why those decisions get made and and the processes. So I thought, I felt that there was a need for an organization that really specialized in in knowing that um, and being able to, in particular, help African countries, but also others to uh, get the most out of that development relationship. Not that it was bad, not that it was good, but to get as much out of it as possible, which is what um, which is what people do with with other development partners. So um, that was number one reason. The other reason um, was at the time, you know, personally, I was working um, for UNDP. It was one of the kind of one of the earliest organizations to have a section which was entirely devoted to working with China as a development partner. So the kind of the South-South um South South uh, organization, um, part of, part of the office. And that was a part of the office that I was overseeing. Um, but I, I also quickly realized that many of the other UN agencies, for example, even UN AIDS or, um, or WHO, they also wanted to do this kind of thing and, and needed the support to do that and also could have some great, um, great outcomes if they did partner with China more, um, and also, um, provide more understanding to Chinese counterparts, for example, of the needs in African countries, um, or other, uh, other recipient countries that they may be working with. So I felt that while UNDP was, you know, pioneering, 
there were other UN agencies also needed the same kind of support. And so again, an organization like ours, which would be, which would provide that kind of support was also a, a, a gap, um, that could and needed to be, needed to be felt, needed to be filled. And I think the last, the last reason, um, and kind of coming back to sort of processes and so on, one of the reasons, you know, I'd, I've worked in government, I've worked in international organizations, um, I think the private sector is another type of organization and, and kind of coming, coming to a sort of entrepreneurial spirit, as it were. I was quite often frustrated with how slowly things worked in large organizations. Um, at the same time, uh, really just wanting to, you know, knowing that there was so much potential for more information to be put out there. So that's why I, I decided to set up Development Reimagined as a, as a consultancy so that we could work in an agile um, and flexible way, but also so that while we have this mission, one of our, one of the reasons we work in a very practical way to deliver that mission is, is to also um, share all of the, as much as possible of the work that we do for our different clients, whether it's UN organizations, whether it's, um, whether it's governments or foundations, try and share as much of that as possible, put that into the public um, eye so that people can use it as a public good. Um, so we have this kind of um, many consultancies you'll come across really only do very internal work or they'll do work directly for clients um, and, and you know, never it's never shared. Um, we don't work that way. We try to put out as much information and again, because I feel, you know, development is a, is a public good, then, um, that's, that's also how we operate as an, as an organization, even if we're private sector. So we're kind of much more flexible, much more agile, um, and have, you know, specific ways of working to try to, to try to make that, um, a reality. Yeah. Um, and that's very true because if you go to your website, you have at least, um, hundred articles, reports that are there for people to serve as a knowledge base, particularly on Africa-China relations. And that's very crucial. Um, I would like Mr. Andam, um, to tell us about, Anam, to tell us about your journey into joining, um, development reimagined. Yes. Thank you. So I joined, uh, development reimagined, uh, last year, beginning of last year and, uh, principally to work on uh, certain projects which of course were touching on China's relationship with Africa. So key among them was uh, the, the from, I mean, China to Africa to Africa to China blueprint, which you mentioned early in your intro. And so my role in it was basically to, to, to focus on, on the trade aspects of, of China's relationship with, with Africa. But we, we looked at it from the point of view of uh, Africa's policies. So like Hannah's mentioned, most often times there have been discussions about Chinese influence on the continent, but there's, uh, there's, there's not much information, there's not much evidence-based writing as to regarding the strategy that African countries either collectively or individually, individually can pursue to extract uh, the benefits from this relationship. And as you all know, the relationship touches not only on infrastructure, which is usually the, the most visible aspect of it, but they quite a lot of, a, a lot of aspects that are often not, not spoken about, like people to people relationships, like foreign direct investments and like uh, e-commerce, like uh, changing of standards that are happening on the continent. 
and where the African countries are really benefiting from what China is, is already offering in terms of technologies. So I worked on that report as, a, as, as an analyst, and I think it's been one of the most influential so far in terms of uh, mapping the strategy that African continent uh, can take, can pursue in terms of engaging with, with China. And so beyond that, I've been on, on, on a couple of projects uh, which are touching on African countries and where China is involved. And this range from, from the FOCAC, which is the Forum for Africa, for, for China Africa relationship and raging and, and also covering a global health as well as vaccines. And so by now I've been, I've been developing imagined for a couple of, uh, uh, let's say a year and five months. And so before I joined them, I, my perception of, of, of China on the continent, of course, as a researcher was not as wide as it is now. And so now I'm able to interact with the issues involving the relationship from a more informed and a more research-based and evidence-based perspective. So I think that's what I would say for now. Thanks. Yeah, and that is very true. I read on your website that before 2006, there was actually no um, report and that focused on what exactly is the impact of China on Africa's development. And even that report that was published from a center, I've forgotten the name, did not focus so much on Africa. It had only about four African countries in it. So it's difficult, but seemingly development reimagined is bridging that gap. But I would like to start off our conversation with something that I've always thought about and never understood. There is an anti-China sentiment around the world, especially from the West. Where does that come from, Hannah? All right, you're going straight into the politics, are you? Because um, <laughs> I mean, I, so I'm I'm an economist by training, as you as you had mentioned in your in your intro. Um, so I often see things through an economic lens, um, but others will see them through a geopolitical lens and um, and through geographical, historical, and whatever. So you know, take take my take my notes from take my my answer from 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 an economic perspective. I think. Um, you know, the the anti-China sentiment is, um, I think, is to is to some degree to do with uh, with waning economic influence um, in, or I guess, to some degree, countries shifting their economic relations and a concern about the, that shifting of economic relations in order, and and worrying that. Uh, the, that means there will be less control um, and and in effect and perhaps agency from uh, from let's say the global north if we call them that but high income countries changing changing the balance basically I think much of it comes from from that if we're talking about international relations but I also think it comes with from an internal concern so uh, for example. Um, you know, one of the organizations that, uh, development reimagined, we, we work with a number of different chambers of commerce, but of course, um, but in particular in, in, in China, the British Chamber of Commerce, uh, are able to, they take members from all over the world, right? So, um, we work very closely with the British Chamber of Commerce. And one of the challenges that, that they have, for instance, is, is in trying to explain to, even to UK parliamentarians, how, how, how 
things are going in China and try to say, well, this isn't necessarily the correct interpretation, etc. But there is, um, there's also domestic concerns that come out of the, that are then reflected into international relations, the kind of competition, etc. So I think, um, but what, what I think needs to be in terms of the, the relationship, I'm not saying that these things are not real. Um, and many, when you're, when you're actually looking at kind of anti-China sentiment within African countries, for instance, many of, much of that is around real things. Um, things like, you know, Chinese workers or, um, you know, uh, where does the money go, etc. But a lot of it is also partly because there's a very, very little information. It comes back to that point that, that you and Patrick were making, which is there's not enough information on understanding about how things work and also language barriers, of course, to then be able to really interpret why these things happen and to then not turn that into just an anti-China thing, but actually something a bit more constructive of how do we, how do we go forward? Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's an African perspective. I don't think it's, um, but it may not be a perspective from, from others. So, uh, it's, it's complex. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And that's in tune with what you guys do, right? Because you, you, you say that you're working around, um, sustainable development and poverty reduction in the dynamic and complex world. And China particularly is a complex thing. But what do you think that most people don't understand about China and so misconstrues their interpretation of what Chinese collaboration means for the world, but particularly what Chinese culture, um, how it differs from the other parts of the world and so misconstrues people's interpretation of how China works. Do you mean, do you mean African, African no, I mean, interpretations yeah, I mean, or, or I mean globally? globally, yeah, and then you can see into China, a more African interpretation. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I ask that because again, there's, there's one of the things that we try to do, um, in development reimagined and we have, you know, a value, one of our values is about kind of not othering. Okay. So mm-hmm. when we talk about development, we're talking about us, not them over there. And so exactly. even when, you know, even in things like our style guide on how we write, we're not talking about the Chinese. We're talking about, um, Chinese government or, um, um, or, or China as a, um, or, you know, state owned enterprises or private sector companies or whatever. We're trying to break that down. We don't talk about, um, we don't talk about sub-Saharan Africa. We talk about Africa. We talk about African countries, um, and distinguish governments, businesses and citizens, you know, these sorts of things. So we're not, we, we really try to make sure that we're not, um, that we're not falling into the trap of suggesting that China, Chinese people or Chinese government thinks they're in a completely different way to, let's say, uh, the British government or the American government, you know, we try and, or, or the Kenyan government, we try and bring these things together, try and find commonalities as much as we, as much as possible, because we're all human at the end of the day. Um, so while I think there are definitely, you know, there's clear things, language barriers, it, it's not simple to learn Chinese. Um, certainly simpler for those who are grown up with several languages to then go into Chinese. I was even having a conversation with, uh, with some, some people from, uh, from, from DRC and, and Ghana who were talking about how their languages have tones, right? Twi and, 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 uh, um, and 
and, so, and others, some of African language have tones, so it's much easier to understand the differences between tones um, in Chinese. But aside from that, you know, there is clearly, clearly significant language barriers which we have to uh, deal with. There are, there are definitely cultural specificities, but I wouldn't say that those are, are significant barriers to understanding, um, to understanding China in a, in a, in a, in a, in a strong way. I think the, once you start to, once you start to understand in particular China's development path and the, the way that the, the Chinese, uh, state is organized to try to, uh, to try to push that development path, then you also start to understand, well, okay, the Chinese, Chinese development path has been very much about, for instance, developing infrastructure, number one. Which is then for the masses, right? Masses to be able to, masses to be able to take advantage of. Then you try to bring together, um, you know, different stages of the poverty reduction journey. Once you understand that, then you understand the logic of how, for example, um, Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese organizations, state owned enterprises, et cetera, when they go to places like African, like African countries, what they then see and what they see is to, in terms of things like potential for development or, 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 um, poverty reduction. But I think it is harder for, let's say, uh, an American citizen, a French citizen to be able to, um, to then to understand the, the, the Chinese journey Perhaps, um, it doesn't necessarily, might not look as impressive as it might to an African who is, you know, who understands, well, this is where we were 40 years ago and this is where we are now. It's, I think the, it, it, it hits in a different way. Um, so I think that's also part of it, but I think it's often just, just perspective. Once you start to listen, once people start to listen, once people are open to listening, um, and sharing, then I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's it's something that we can that that's that's not overcomable, if you know what I mean. Yeah, very true, um, Patrick. So I would like you to tell us about your paper. Um, what is the case for, I mean, Africa, China um, relationships? I mean, especially on a on a on a on a trading block. What happens, like, is, is it possible for Africa to ignore China in trade relationships? And if not, in what ways, according to your paper, are the best ways that we can collaborate? Um, and I guess in more ways, co-create with China to make sure that we learn from their innovation approaches, we learn from their growth sprouts and Collaborate with them, especially when it comes to financing, which is very key for Africa's infrastructure development. Yes, thanks. Yeah, so I would, I would, I'll speak about uh, the paper generally uh, in terms of what we found out as, as well as what we recommended. And then also drawing upon it, uh, I'll also comment uh, on, on the issues you've raised, some of which, of course, the responses may not be contained in the paper, but also in other, some of our other aspects of, of researches that we, we've carried out o- over the years. Now, starting with the paper, you mentioned about uh, how, how, so the paper was about uh, from, from China, Africa to, to Africa, China. So 
from the title of, it, of the paper, what development Imagine was trying to put out was the fact that for, for most of the time, the relationship has been viewed as if, uh, as if uh, everything is coming from China down to Africa. And so the, the, the theme of the, of the paper was basically trying to, to, to undo that thinking and basically put more of agency on, on, on the African countries. And indeed, we did find that there, there are a lot of aspects of agency which African countries can make use of. And so, like I mentioned, we, the paper is classified into different aspects. It looks at trade, it looks at people-to-people -people, uh, movement, which, which includes the cultural issues Hannah has spoken about. It, it, it includes foreign direct investments, and it also includes infrastructure. And so one of the findings we did find is, 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 is that uh, the relationship, uh, of course, began formally 20 years ago when, when FOCAC was inaugurated in, in, in the year 2000. And by the, the, the inauguration of FOCAC or the inception of the FOCAC as an outfit was born out of the needs that were culminated or articulated by African countries. So contrary to popular view, it was African countries that, that really, I mean, so really wanted the, the, the FOCAC to, to come in, come into play. But having, having come into play, there have been a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, meetings that has happened over the years under FOCAC. And uh, most of these meetings have come up with declarations as well as with, with action, uh, action points, uh, action plans rather which focuses on, 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 on areas which basically the, the Chinese needs to put in investments on the continent and also African countries needed to, you know, come up with the bankable or, or, or projects that can be financed. And so when I talk about, let's say, let's say the, the AU, for instance, in the report, we'll find that we, we focus on the, on, on the AU, which over the years has, as 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 came up with the, what we call the Agenda 2063, which which has a, lo a lot of frameworks, uh, basically six frameworks, and FFTA is 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 a, is one of the projects under under the EU and under the Agenda 2063. So that uh, in trade, for instance, we, we found out that currently China is trading with the with the, with the most African countries on on a bilateral basis. So. There's no, there's no Africa continent-wide FTA with China. What there is, 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 is China is offering uh, individual countries who are LDCs the, the duty-free quarter-free market access. But we went deeper and found that even, even with the market access, there's still a myriad of problems that African countries are facing uh, when they're trading with China. And this includes things like uh, non-tariff barriers, as well as uh, sanitary and phytosanitary measures, and again, in the, in that in that arena, there are several agreements which China has inked with the different African countries, like Namibia, for instance, and, and Rwanda. On 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 for, for the Namibia case, is is the aspect of beef. So basically, China, like I mentioned, doing it bilaterally has been has been enabling uh, certain countries to basically access its market for for certain products under and an, an, under such some arranged terms but we are we went we went further and gave certain recommendations through which that can be made more effective and through which that can be made to be to be applicable to most of african countries 
among among the recommendations which you'll find in the paper are are things like encouraging African countries to develop uh, geographical indications so that their products can fetch more value on the continent and so that that can address the aspect of trade deficits which is rampant when, when you consider the trade flows between African countries and 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 China. And then secondly also we the the report talks about uh, how how China can be can 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 draw lessons or rather can draw lessons that it used in in uh, in alleviating poverty uh, which was rampant in the 60s and 70s and how that can be married and be reflected on on, on what African countries are current and are going through and what the AU is trying to, to achieve so basically we're linking we are linking we are linking the sustainable development goals to the African uh, Union's goals which are also on sustainability to what AU needs to do with regards to its relationship with China so that the strategy in our view needs to be a China strategy not not uh, not not a so, so, so Africa needs to have a strategy vis-a-vis -vis China and not vice versa. Because again, the history of, of these deals and the history of trade globally will show you that it, it's, it's what you ask that you get. In this, in this instance, therefore, uh, it, it is, it is African countries that who know what, what they want more from the relationship. And I think in entrenching the agency, they needed to, to, to flash out what is most important to them and put it on the table when they go to discuss with China so that they can achieve what 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 they what they set out to achieve eventually so i think that's that's basically what i wanted to mention about uh, about the paper but uh, only to say that uh, it is um, it is not so much about uh, the the existence of china or the eu on the us in as in as far as we are concerned or, or in, and in as far as african concerned but it is more about how do African countries want to integrate with these development partners in a beneficial way. Um, thank you very much. Uh, so, Hannah, zeroing on that, Patrick, on all that Patrick said, in redefining this um, relationship with China and Africa having more a strategy for it, what do you think should be the focus? I think that infrastructure comes to mind. But maybe can you go into a nitty-gritty of what Africa should be focused on getting from China? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, in, in, in development reimagined, you'll hear us talk a lot about agency. Um, it is a, it's a big, big area for us, but, and what we're trying to do is, is to build that agency. So, um, that's what, that's what Patrick, um, has, has very ably explained. I think, um, there's a few priorities, definitely infrastructure, as you mentioned. Um, but one of the things that we of course have to contend with is that African governments are currently under a lot of pressure internationally to stop lending or to reduce, to reduce borrowing, sorry. Um, and, you know, with, especially with COVID-19, we've had a lot of spending. We've had to spend, um, not only for the health crisis, but also with, um, with, with economic, 
uh, we had to, yeah, well, we had to, we had to, we had to lock down and we've been slowly opening up and the rest of the world locked down, um, which was not, not easy for us to deal with, you know, lack of tourism, you know, certain countries very dependent on tourism, for instance. Um, and, and then trade as well has fallen with some countries. So, you know, it has been a significant challenge. Um, and, and not to say that governments haven't been, haven't been very responsive. They have been responsive, but, Nevertheless, it, it, it means that the spending, um, has been, has had to rise to respond. Uh, and it also, so, but it's spending on recurrence, recurrent things like health or, um, or, or salaries, employment subsidies or food subsidies, et cetera. The same with, with, uh, with Russia, Ukraine. That's what we're having to do. So. African governments are under a lot of pressure not to take more, take more debt. Um, yet we've got these huge financing gaps. We've got these infrastructure gaps. And, and, you know, contrary to a lot of the, a lot of press and, and discussions, even things like AFCFTA, I think our view is AFCFTA is definitely a game changer. Very, very important. The African continental free trade areas Patrick was talking about. Very, very important. But on the other hand, it will not work if we do not have better infrastructure and in particular better regional infrastructure. Um, so this is something which, um, we, we've been, we've been talking a lot about trying to, uh, share more information with Chinese stakeholders about, uh, regional infrastructure projects, where they're going. This is one of the key recommendations that came out of, out of Patrick's paper that this is, this is where we should be focusing going forwards. Um, and so, uh, that, that we hope is gonna, is gonna, is gonna start taking off more. There are a few examples of it, things like the Ethiopia Djibouti Railway, for instance. Um, but of course, there's so many more, uh, regional projects, um, to, to put into place. So that's one area. I think the other area, um, definitely foreign direct investment. Again, Patrick was talking about this in the context of, uh, increasing added value. Um, of trade. Those two things are complementary. So a lot of trade flows from Africa to, to, from African countries to whether it's Europe or, or China or, or elsewhere, a lot of them are often in, in raw materials. How do we change that relationship? Well, yes, definitely, um, uh, the regional infrastructure and the logistics is going to be crucial, but we also need to have more foreign direct investment. We need to have more investment into manufacturing and processing. Um, so again, that's an area that we think is of definite, um, priority. And again, in order for that to happen, it's not just a case of African government saying, um, uh, well, we have, you know, these tax incentives or whatever. We know that when we speak to Chinese stakeholders, they're more interested in, well, what is, what are the employment how much, how much are the wages that we need to pay? What are the logistics of shipping from this place to the other? What are the tariffs that are charged on these particular projects? They want pro- products. They want a lot more detailed information, um, about these kinds of investments than perhaps, um, than, than many African governments, uh, realize, uh, initially at least. So part of what we do is to try to, try to help in gathering that kind of information and again, sharing that with, with Chinese stakeholders so that, so that these can be real investments that they make. Um, and then, and then of course, all of these need to be green, right? We cannot, we're not going to have, uh, you know, manufacturing future, uh, a future, you know, where we're, 
that that looks like that's had to go through the same transition that China has. You know, where you know when when I when I was in Beijing, you know, we couldn't we couldn't go out. I couldn't take my child out um, on certain days, especially in winter, because we had to be because of the pollution. That's not what we want uh, to be happening in most of African cities, in particular. So, how do we avoid that? Well, this is the time to start investing in the infrastructure, in the green infrastructure, in the green methods um, to be able to 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 avoid and the renewable energy to avoid that kind of transition and to avoid um, those challenges going forward. So, again, that's something that we can do in partnership with China because China is also. Um, China is also developing those um, in domestically. So how do we how do we take those forward? So those are a few areas, um, few areas of priority. I'm sure I've missed some out, but um, also definitely, you know, I think part of the point is is to have these kinds of ideas. It doesn't mean one idea is better than the other, or you know, they're mutually exclusive. If other people have ideas, if other you know, if think tanks, if governments. Um, have ideas. I think we can bring them all to the table. The most important thing is to be is to be actively in dialogue, actively discussing and putting these things forward. And I think that was what we felt just was not happening sufficiently from the African side. And we've been really trying to um, try to make that difference. Yeah. So I know you published a dead report. So I would like to pose this rather direct, maybe more difficult question: Is Africa really in a debt trap? Yes or no? Or is it more nuanced? And how far are we in a debt crisis in relation to its um, relationship with China? If not, um, what more can we do to attract even more investments? And and I've read a lot of articles from your website, and I can see that actually it seems to me, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that there's actually more opportunity for China to have more investments in Africa than the other way around. And uh, because there are reports where you were talking about pharmaceutical development and how there's already a deficit in drug and vaccine production in Africa and how China can actually have more investment. So what is the issue here and how do we clarify that? Okay, so that's lots of questions, but I'm going to take your debt ones first. <laughs> um, so debt trap, are we... So first of all, debt crisis... Our view, um, our company view, um, and again, comes out of the work very clearly in, even in the reports from Patrick. Um, we are in a, in a crisis of too little debt, not too much debt. And the reason I say that is because, you know, we, time and time again, we talk about these numbers. We have massive infrastructure financing gaps. African Development Bank, we all know the numbers. At least sixty-eight to a hundred and uh, and thirty-eight billion uh, US dollars of uh, infrastructure financing gap that we need. To, we cannot deliver those. Modeling suggests that we cannot deliver those through internal taxes. We can't. Just simple as that. We can't do it domestically. So there are external financing gaps. So how do we do that? We have to raise money outside. Now, when we go to to outside, who do we have? We have. The multilaterals, World Bank, IMF, we have uh, African Development Bank. We also have uh, bilaterals, China, US, UK, France. Then we have private sector, um, and what, what often kind of gets labeled into euro bonds. That's for lending. 
investment is totally different. Investment is completely different. Um, but with, for borrowing, these are the, these are the groups that we have. And the challenge with, with many of those groups is that in the past and up till around 2000, um, you know, we've had, we have tried to, we have borrowed from, uh, many of those groups, but they have been very difficult. Um, it's difficult to secure multilateral lending. You've got to go through a whole set of hoops. You've got to agree to uh, new reform programs, how you're spending. You actually need to cut down your taxes quite often um, or, or, um, or raise taxes and then, uh, and then also and cut down spending um, in order to, in order to get those programs. Or um, with private sector, the interest rates are typically quite high because private sector, um, especially from um, from Europe and, and elsewhere, think that uh, the risk in Africa is very high. Uh, so the the there are constraints that have that that we've met. And on the other hand, when when African countries go to China as a lender. They face less constraints. It's it's certainly much easier to to obtain borrowing. It goes back to the, my point at the very beginning about you know the reason the reason why uh, Chinese uh, Chinese operators are stakeholders are more willing to lend is is not because they're stupid. Um, it's it's because they see okay yeah this infrastructure project could work. It could bring dynamism to the economy. Okay, we can we can go for it. Um, and they can they can see that there's a path forward because that's their experience. They made infrastructure work for the economy, so um, it's not illogical that they've that they've done that. But it still means that those kinds of projects really do need to deliver a return. And I think part that's part of the problem. One of the things we always talk about is not only that there's not enough debt, but also that the quality of debt is not not high enough. So one of the things that, for example, multilateral lenders do not take into account is, or even share any statistics around, is what is what is the economic return that this, these particular projects are really going to deliver? Um, are they, or, or kind of spending, is the is the spending recurrent expenditure, or is it going to be uh, investing into a project which will itself generate growth? Things like. A railway will generate growth because it will make, uh, make, uh, investments faster. Um, it will, it will make, um, it will make logistics faster. It will create efficiency. And then you also get, you know, for example, you create markets at different stations and so on. So there's, there's ways of thinking about these things and, and ways of measuring what, uh, what the quality of investment, which we just don't do right now, quality of borrowing that we just don't do right now. Um, and I think we do need to do. So that's one of the things that we, uh, that we really try and that we're trying to work on is what does a kind of reformed architecture or a firm reformed statistics around, um, debt sustainability? How can we think about debt sustainability in a much, um, much more clearer way, which actually meets the needs of African countries for more lending? Um, uh, which is yeah, so so that's a, a short, a long, a long way for a very short answer. Which is no, there is, we don't have too little debt. We have too much. Too, we don't have too much debt. We have too little debt. Um, the other point to 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 raise: Are we in a are we in a debt crisis? Though um, there are three African countries so far who have um, 
who have said publicly that they need to restructure the existing debt as a result of the COVID-19 spending challenges that they've had to um, that they've had to make. Now, that's not because they've been and, and we have to be very clear. It's not because they've been irresponsible, but because they have they have had to spend more on COVID-19 and they therefore cannot spend on paying back the debt that they have. And the debt that they have is not, is also, has also got interest rates with it. So, you know, some of the interest rates are very high. Some of them are lower, but some of them are very high. So how, um, part of the problem is also the higher interest rates. So it's three and we have 55 African countries. So three out of 55 is a very small ratio. Um, so we need to remember that. So, and always put that in context. And, and the vast majority of African countries, um, do have, have have got have got debt which is they're able to pay back but the challenge is can they get more debt in order to then invest into productive activity for the rest of the for the rest of the economy to help citizens find new jobs and all this sort of thing and that's just not there um so yeah so i think those are that that's where we come at this at this challenge um and we also come at this challenge from a kind of historic point of view that you know we're at, we're at overall for the African continent. We're at about 1980s, early 1980s levels of debt to GDP ratios. So, um, we're not at the, at the kind of seriously, seriously high, um, high, uh, debt to GDP ratios. You know, some countries went over 200% of GDP, um, when, when they were in serious crisis and then needed debt relief, right? A complete, complete, um, cancellation of their debt. We're not at the, at that kind of stage, but we are at the possibility where that could happen. So what we need to do is to learn the lessons from the 1980s and to make sure that we don't fall into those type, sorts of traps again, where we see the interest rates rising, where we see the um, GDP to debt ratios rising uh, to uncontrollable levels. So we're at kind of at a, at a turning point. Um, but it means learning lessons and learning lessons um, is sometimes quite difficult to do, especially especially for large institutions um, like IMF and World Bank, who we who we who um, and, and even Chinese institutions and so on, um, who uh, who are used to certain ways of working. Yeah. Hi, um, Hannah. Daniel here. I have a quick question regarding what you just elaborated on. I mean, I can understand the point of the little debt, and I think, of course, that comes with a caveat of it being investments being deployed correctly. Or um, the question I have is in terms of a word you mentioned prior, agency, and now the hinting at, let's say, organizations like IMF being from the Chinese side, and also the need for maybe a different look at the debt. How much of that kind of shift? needs to happen maybe on the IF, IMF side versus has to come from, let's say, African countries, African governments? So, so Daniel, just to, just to clarify your question, are you, how much, how much agency do multilaterals, for instance, need to give to African countries or, or how much agency can African countries just grab? Is that your point? No, sorry, I didn't. Let me clarify. I was more asking in terms of that debt, how it is characterized, let's say, in the media and general conversations. 
and how it is looked at, how much of that kind of research work or information and creating that narrative that needs to come from uh, the African side, because we are pointing at, let's say, development patterns of, uh, of other regions and then, let's say, from the 80s and the learnings to be done. So my question is more towards how much of that research and learning can come from the African side. Right, understood. So I think in term in I think it's very, very important that African governments right now are very clear about what they think are the challenges ahead in terms of debt, and that they are the ones that are clarifying what are uh, what the what the narrative is. They definitely need to take take charge of it. Um for instance, you know, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to things like, uh, COVID-19 crisis or also Russia, Ukraine, it's very easy to let others create that narrative. And, but with COVID-19, for example, what was the narrative? The narrative was, well, Africa is going to be in serious trouble. It's going to be the place where, you know, the the region where all most of the COVID-19 deaths are going to be, et cetera, et cetera, horror, horror. And then we find out, and and we were tracking this in, in Development Reimagined, also very much as a public good. Actually, you know, African governments did take significant steps to respond to COVID-19. Some people feel that they were too strong. Some of them, um, don't. And, you know, we've been trying to, <laughs> trying to work out what the right balance is ever since. Um, but took significant steps to be able to control COVID-19 and avoid the COVID-19 overwhelming health systems in the way that it might. And it was, it was a real possibility that it would do that. Um, but, and, and it did in some, in some, some African countries like South Africa or Egypt. Whereas, you know, had, had, had we been in control of that narrative, perhaps it would have been clear from the beginning that African governments can take control and are reaching out to citizens to try to support them, et cetera. Maybe not enough because yes, we don't have enough fiscal space, but we're doing what we can. Um, so, and similarly, there's, there's similar challenges with Russia, Ukraine, complete un- misunderstanding of where African governments are coming on this, of what non-interference means, of what, uh, uh, you know, and we're not even talking about debt. And when we start to talk about the financial crisis, financial aspects of Russia, Ukraine, you know, we're all talking about food and fuel and, and fertilizer. Um, but, you know, African, African countries depend much less on, 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 uh, on Russia, Ukraine for trade than they do with China. Um, so supply chain crises really depend much more on, on China, for instance, or, uh, so, so there's, and similarly, and so, so we've got, we really do need to take charge of the narrative. I think, um, if we did, I think we would be able to learn lessons from the 1980s because, you know, many governments, many leaders in power right now were also there. Some of them were also there in the eighties and, um, and at least, you know, understand, understand the legacy of, of, of the 1980s and things like structural, structural adjustment programs. And it's important that we just don't fall back into those traps. So it's very important that African governments sees that, see that moment now to say, well, this is where we, these are the mistakes we want to avoid. Um, and these are the parameters of what, you know, reform programs might look like if we have to get more lending from IMF, et cetera. 
um, but also demanding reform of the system so that, so that again, so that we don't fall into the 1980s, 1990s crises. Yeah, that's a very elaborate response. Um, Patrick, what is happening with the Belt and Road Initiative? You know, and the initiation of the project, it had a lot of media. How is it going now? And what indication is China showing that it has interest in um, continuing to invest in Africa um, on that level um, in 2020, in 2022, sorry? Yes, yeah, thanks. Yes, yeah, so the, the Belt and Road Initiative, or the BRI, as it's, it's, it's fondly referred to, is, uh, of course, it's, it, it, it was uh, incep- it, the inception was sometime, sometime around 2013. And uh, I think over the years, uh, several, several uh, African countries have, have come on board with regards to the same. What I would say regarding it and how China's uh, position on it would be and what we see as development reimagined is the fact that it is uh, it's critically important because of course it's opening up the continent to to the rest of the world and it's basically boiling down to uh, improving the, the the supply chains which of course uh, africa continent is as as we speak now currently lacking in in, in a deep sense and so in terms of um, in terms of the current status, there are, there are individual, there are individual projects in, in, in several countries and which, which were mentioned earlier by my colleague about the connectivity of, of the continent as being important. So that when you look at uh, East Africa, for instance, we have the, the, the Lapset project. It boils into the Belt and Road Initiative. We have the, the, the railway system, which was uh, put up uh, in Kenya. We currently have uh, uh, plans by, by by African countries to basically link up regional railways. For instance, the EAC uh, intends to link the standard gauge railway that is happening in Kenya to the one in, in, in Uganda as well as Tanzania so that it opens up this uh, this region to, 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 to trade. All this boil, boil, boil into the Belt and Road Initiative. So... There are a couple of uh, isolated projects which are happening on the continent and in several countries on a bilateral arrangement uh, between these countries and uh, and China. And all these, uh, they boil into the, the, the BRI framework. And uh, just to, 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 to take you back, the BRI framework, much as uh, most people think it only involves the infrastructure, it involves uh, other aspects like uh, communication. It involves other aspects like uh, like knowledge transfer. It involves other aspects like creating uh, clearer channels of trade and cre- creating uh, zones so that you are able to f- to 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 have value added on the continent, as opposed to value taken. Uh, I mean, raw materials being cutted away essentially, so that the value is added elsewhere. So my view is that um, to the extent that uh, Chinese financing is still going to several countries to to towards infrastructure and uh, to the extent also that the African countries and the regional economic communities are now thinking of connecting several uh, countries on in, in the continent uh, through infrastructure so that you're able to have a uh, free movement or rather faster movement of, of goods 
people and services across the regions. That one, I think it, it's, it's critical and it boils down to, to African countries being able to benefit from the, from the BRI, which, which incidentally, uh, Africa is just part of it. I mean, it's, it's a massive, it's a massive, uh, project that cuts across continents and Africa is just being, uh, one of the, the consumers through, through what, uh, what, uh, through the different initiatives. Now, my colleagues have also in the past, uh, been able to, to, to link the AFCFTA with the BRI. And uh, Lekana mentioned, when you talk about the Africa continental free trade area, I mean, the core, the core principle of it is, is, is essentially trade. But how do you trade in a region that is not connected and countries are not linked to each other? How do you trade in a, in a country, in, 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 in a continent where there are no trade facilitative measures and there are bottlenecks across the borders. Now, that one means there needs to be investment in infrastructure. There needs to be investment in border control measures. There's need to, there's need for invest in investment in e-commerce and digital uh, trade, for instance. This one calls for, for, for partnerships. And, and so far from where we stand, China has been able to offer this and continues to do so through financing of, of these rail projects. Of course, there's the issue of uh, the model of financing the same. So other than the concessional loans, which have been spoken about, there are also uh, newer models like like the, the public-private partnerships and uh, like, like the build uh, operate transfers, which which I think are being being put on 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 some of these frameworks to deliver for the for for Africa. So that technically, if there were to be if there were to be integration of infrastructure on the continent fully, then the 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 AFCFTA shall have, shall have achieved its aim. And I think the recent comments and recent forays by the by the secretariat led by Wamkele to to sort of reach out to partners, including the US, the EU, and of course China, in terms of entrenching infrastructure is a pointer to the fact that we cannot talk about trade if you don't have connecting infrastructure. And so once that, uh, when, when the financing continues, uh, which, which China is already a, a participant in, and which from our research also indicates that there's, there's a huge gap that cannot, cannot actually be filled by, by China alone. Other, other players also need to come in more than they have, they, they have, they have done so, they, they've done before because when, when you compare in terms of practicality of, 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 of delivering of projects in terms of what China has been able to offer vis-a-vis -vis what has been there before China came in and what the multilateral lenders like World Bank has done in terms of infrastructure, the performance is, 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 I think is there for everyone to see. And I think there was, there was a lull, there's a lull for a long, long time. And I think that's where African countries found themselves with very dilapidated, dilapidated and very ineffective and inefficient infrastructural projects. So I think uh, China through BRI is, is still on course to achieving its connectivity, which Africa is part of. And therefore, it also behoves uh, upon African countries to take up this challenge and entrench through their, you know, other national and regional policies, more effective infrastructure to build into this this BRI so that it does not become just a, just a, just a Chinese idea. It needs to be owned up 
and in owning it up the, the the countries on the continent needs to realize that once that trade happens to the bri the, the question that need to be asked is how do you what what, what is the nature of the trade are, are you are you cutting away raw products or are you adding value on the continent and through adding that value what are the investment policies what are the relationship policies that countries need to put in place to ensure that uh, this this productivity and effective uh, trade between africa and, and and china and and also with the rest i, I like that point that you made on being value added oriented first and i think that's a very instrumental approach in moving forward with any kind of um international collaboration that africa needs or things it should have um now hannah we've had a lot of conversation around debt financing i'm going to just pack this two questions and then we'll move on from that conversation permanently but first is in talking about debt in talking about financing um we have to also consider ownership right and there is you kind of tease that in some of the things that you said previously that there is concern with what African uh, Chinese people or let me say China, um, no, more specifically some Chinese actors who may be acting um, in bad faith, not necessarily as China's position, but in Africa, how should we think about ownership, right, on the continent, especially our resources that are very crucial to us and in dealing with China? And how do you make sure that in in China facilitating development by financing as we are careful not to be given away our natural resources and the foundations on which we are going to build development in the future? Yeah, very good, very good points. Um, look, I think I think there's really two things. Um, first of all, you know there there are definitely concerns that. You know, some of the contracts, for instance, that governments have signed with Chinese uh, actors are uh, not the best contracts that they that, you know, kind of give away certain um, certain assets and so on. Now, those concerns have actually been debunked by uh, not only ourselves, but also um, also people like Deborah Broutingham from um, from from Size Carry, John Hopkins um, and, and others. Right. So I think definitely go back to that literature to be able to, to understand the full picture. But I think there's still, there's still a general concern, um, which I think needs to be addressed. I think one of two, there's two different things that governments can do to address this. First of all, African governments can do. First of all, it, it is to have a China strategy and ideally to have a public one. Um, having a public China strategy, uh, will be able to, is a way to engage the public around what are we doing with this very important development actor? Where are we going with this relationship? What are we trying to get out of it? And how does that translate into things like employment, jobs, et cetera? And it can create at least, you know, a kind of positive um, public conversation around, around where, around where people, around the relationship rather than um, having to, having to think through these nitty gritty things that actually in many cases can be debunked and also and not only be debunked by very specific analysis, but also the fact that in most cases, um, and definitely in all cases that we know of, what the process of China agreeing to different loans, for instance, is African governments come up with the proposals 
and they will they will put those proposals. They have they cannot be signed by anybody else. They have to be signed by governments, um, and they and signed off by African governments. And so they 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 get they have full understanding of them, um, and 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 in cases. And Patrick has worked on some of these cases where there are disputes. For example, uh, the. Chinese, uh, Chinese organizations are subsidiary to what national law says. So if the national law says a contract needs to be transparent, then the contract will have to be transparent if the government wants it to be transparent. That's, that's the law. And, and they can, and any Chinese stakeholder has to be subsidiary to it. So that's one, that's one thing. Having a China strategy and basically trying to be as transparent about the relationship as possible. A country like Cameroon, Publishes all the contracts with Chinese stakeholders. So, you know, there's no reason why other African, other African countries can't do that. But I think what Cameroon doesn't do at the moment and what most African countries don't do at the moment is say, this is where we're trying, this is what we're trying to get with our relationship, including things like trade, et cetera. And our blue, the blueprint that Patrick was talking about is a really good model for that. It's got the financial aspects. It's got the trade aspects. It's got the people aspects. You use that. You know, and link it to the, the country's development plan is is something which can engage engage African citizens and even businesses in. I think the other thing to do is for African governments to coordinate. There's no reason why, and you know, China wouldn't prevent this. There's no reason why African governments cannot come together in in their own room, not with others around, but in their own room. Perhaps convened by the African Union, and you know, we we work with the African Union in China to also convene discussions like this. Of well, how do we get the best out of this relationship? How do we, you know, let's exchange some experience as finance ministers or as finance officials. You know, these are the contracts that we've had. What what does best practice look like? For example, things like Chinese workers. Who got a great contract with regards to Chinese workers? I know Ethiopia did get. I definitely know Ethiopia got a very interesting contract um, with with kind of managing uh, Chinese workers with Ethiopian workers and local jobs and these sorts of things. Those things that matter to African governments, to African citizens, to African businesses, have that discussion amongst amongst Africans and try to um, try to. Uh, try to move the relationship on that way uh, through better coordination. And in fact, we've seen that coordination works. We saw that coordination has worked for COVID-19. Africa CDC took a really great leadership role. It helped us to coordinate our policies and has made a massive difference. We can also do the same with regards to with regards to China and for lots of other, even for the other uh, creditors, we can coordinate our position in a much more stronger way so that we get the best out of them. Um, so those are the two things that I would I would really suggest uh, should should be done uh, in order to avoid this and basically to to have in a very clear way in a very kind of demonstrative way we have more ownership over the relationship. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. One last thing on the finance is, and we're very interested in new ideas on the podcast. So if there's something that development reimagine is thinking about, or maybe some people that you affiliated to are thinking about. Because one thing I am passionate about is how do we kind of come up with new financial reengineering models that are maybe quite different from what we know, either from China existingly or maybe from the West that can creatively finance infrastructure or finance big development in Africa. 
Is that something that development reimagine is thinking about, has thought about, or what new ideas are in that space that can help us in creative and financial reimagining of and, and reengineering of how finance is done and how um, finance of these products are done? Yeah, definitely we're in this space. And um, I would also refer everyone to a report which we wrote, which looks at um, 10 different options for uh, kind of reimagining Africa's debt system uh, in collaboration with others and looking at also other ideas that are out there. Um, and and we we look through a number of different, different things. Um, so please definitely do that. But I think what I would say, one particular model that we are starting to speak to more and more people about um, and trying to share and see if there's um, how much appetite there is, is something which we call a borrower's club. Um, so this borrows <laughs> from the from the idea of microfinance lending, microfinance level um, at the individual level. So um, if you recall something called the Grameen Bank, um, which was which was uh, created in Bangladesh by the Nobel Prize winner Mohammed Yunus. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, what that did, yeah. So previous to that, you know, villages were in in real challenges because they couldn't get collateral, right? And you know, we have all these different schemes the in our own countries these days, you know, in Kenya there's hundreds of microfinance organizations now, but that was a the fact that they didn't have collateral uh, was a was a key problem to them accessing finance. So Grameen came up with it. The, the Grameen Bank was born. Yunus came up with this idea that they would use each other's, uh, each other's kind of accountability system as a means to generate, um, have collateral and to, and to have group lending. So our, our idea is to have that applied at a multilateral level, at a country level. So where you would have a number of recipient countries come together, uh, with you know, some kind of, uh, some kind of structure. So it's a very strong form of coordination that I was just talking about before, you know, kind of coordinate on best practice. This would actually be a much stronger form. And what they're doing is they're saying, well, we are going to put forward, you know, a set of, a set of different projects and ideas to creditors, but creditors don't even need to know the details of them. Uh, what they need to know is the overall results and what they, what those creditors can do, including countries like China or even some of the multilaterals, is then uh, is support this whole structure in itself to go out and get these things done. And the recipients would be the, the borrowers, let's say a number of African countries or all African countries would be accountable to each other um, for the, for making sure that they deliver. Um, they would decide what are the criteria for the projects that would be done. They would decide what kinds of thresholds um, would would be needed. So we're really trying to think about this in a in a very practical way. It's it's a new innovative mechanism that um, we hope uh, will start to be discussed in a lot more detail um, and and effectively you know create new space for the new borrowing that that we were talking about at the beginning to meet some of those infrastructure finance gaps, for instance. Um, in the past, what we've done is go, you know, lender, lender to lender. Um, what, uh, you know, each, lots of creditors with one borrower that, that we think is, is a, is a model of the past. Wow. Okay. That's very interesting. We'll see how that actually evolves. And, but that is a very interesting idea. Um, thank you for sharing. Um, I know in the beginning you didn't want to do the politics, but this is a very important question. Um, Africa is stuck in the middle of, 
this um, very politicized, very polarized um, West China um, relations. And uh, we have kind of high profile listeners to our, our podcast. So if you were to, you know, meet some African leader and you were talking to them about how to position themselves, what would be your words to them? How do you position yourself in this very highly polarized West China relation? You know, um, the AU EU, um, summit, for example, was not a conversation about China, but you can see some very slight, you know, um, positioning from the EU trying to make sure that Africa is seemingly wary of its relationship with China as if that would be some bad thing. But how do you position yourself so that you can get the best out of both, both worlds? Well, um, I don't know what Patrick would say on this as well. Um, my, my fear, and you know, and I do, I do speak to, I do speak to a lot of, uh, a lot of these different, a number of different leaders about these questions. Um, I think the key point is really that all of Africa's development partners can improve. Uh, but the only way that they're going to improve is if they take a good hard look at themselves and, and take a good hard look at their relationship with African countries and from an African perspective. From the agenda 2363 perspective, how are they, um, how are they actually meeting agenda 2063 needs, etc.? Um, and so where we do have this sort of focus of, you know, China versus US or, or US versus China or, or EU versus China, etc., you know, I think a lot of people have often raised this kind of, you know, when two elephants, two elephants fight. It's a Kenyan proverb, apparently also a Nigerian one. I don't know how many other, <laughs> how many other African countries also hold this, hold this as a, as their proverb, but yeah. um, maybe it's a general African one. But two elephants fight, there's no, okay, yes, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um, so, so we can all own it. It's fine, right? Um, but two elephants fight, then the grass, you know, they, they hurt the grass at the bottom. But I think part of the issue is there's not enough grass. And this is what we always say. There's just not enough grass. The, it doesn't matter whether the two elephants are fighting. We, we need to grow the grass underneath and then we can worry about whether the elephants are fighting. Um, but, and so what we need is, is for, is, is, is to really concentrate not just on ourselves, but to have, make sure that, that they are not only looking at each other, that they're also looking at us, that we are part of that, part of, uh, of that discussion. We Africans are part of that discussion, part of geopolitics. And I think the fact is, you know, that has, that is making itself evident with regard to things like Russia, Ukraine. Um, we're seeing some of that, you know, even, and also countries like India, um, uh, also, you know, coming, having very clear views and different views, not just, not just two sides. There's so many different interpretations and, um, and views on what is the answer, uh, for Russia, Ukraine, and no one can ignore those differences in views. Um, so I think, I think it's making itself evident, but, but we need to keep on, um, sort of pushing that, making sure. And I think that's the only way <laughs> that, 
to kind of only way that the African leaders will be able to say to, to in a sense, win um, from all of this is to say, look at us, don't, don't just look at each other. Um, Patrick, do you want to zero in on that? Yeah, yeah, thanks. I think I couldn't agree more with, with uh, what, what has been said by Hannah. And I think the view, the view really is, uh, there, there may have been what, what people call, you know, the, the, the conflicts between the so-called big powers or, or the geopolitics. But I think what, what should be at the center of, of African countries and leadership thinking is, uh, how, 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 how does, how, how does African and how do African countries, uh, partner with, with those who are willing so that they are able to deliver for what is contained in Agenda 2063? And I think this, 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 what is contained in that agenda goes way back to in the 60s of the Abuja Treaty, et cetera, and the, and, and the so-called Africa we want. And I think, um, um, from the 60s up to now, uh, each individual country can see what its uh, what its development partner, as it were, has delivered for it, and also what has happened in the in the in the past, let's say, twenty years, which which during which China, Africa has engaged uh, principally with China in terms of infrastructure. So that my thinking is, I think there there are so many there are so many there are so many issues, and I think we've been able to identify most of them from the researches we carry out, ranging from you know. Insufficient, uh, I mean, poor health systems of the continent, infrastructure as it were, um, uh, Western oriented uh, credit rating agencies, which of course are basically making it difficult for African countries to access uh, credits, as well as, you know, basically blunt, blatant situations of uh, other countries uh, purporting to come and essentially give lectures to, to African countries as to how they need to operate and they need to exercise their agency. I think African countries need to take their agency more seriously and focus on really what matters in terms of are they, are they, are they attaining the SDGs for their citizenry? Are they, are they getting connecting infrastructure? And are they, are they, are they investing in, in value addition on the continent? I mean, these are policies and this, these are ideas which African countries have a lot of say in, in how they can be driven forward as opposed to just uh, basically uh, sitting and, and waiting for, for this, this uh, so-called uh, geopolitical uh, conflict, which in my view actually is actually is a narrative by, 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 by most people. I mean, really, if, if, uh, if, if, uh, if, if, if let's say the U.S. wants to, to have uh, an agreement with an African countries, can that agreement be a trade facilitative agreement? Yes, it can. It can only be do, be done so if the African countries in, 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 in that case wants it to be so. So I think well, all I'm saying is the agencies in African countries hands and they, they need not be swayed by, by, by what, what I would, what I would perceive as really sideshows in terms of how to position themselves. I mean, they've been doing that for the last hundred years and I mean, the evidence of benefits or lack of it should be there for everyone to see. That's what I would say. Thank you. Yeah, I think that is a, a great conclusion. Um, 
Hannah, do you have any last words that I think that probably it could be anything, but most likely maybe on the potential of Africa in these kind of international and multilateral agreements and how how we should um, better position ourselves or generally anything. I mean, I've really enjoyed the conversation. That's why we've exhausted our time and we just love to have any last words from you. Yeah, I think it's been an, it's been a great conversation and I've uh, really enjoyed, enjoyed the questions that you've put to us. Um, I think, I, I don't think there's much left to say. I think we've, we've exhausted quite, we've talked a lot about what we've, what we've been doing, a lot of our perspective on these issues. Um, and I know, you know, it's, it, it can sometimes be, be surprising, you know, when somebody, you know, there's there's so many narratives out there about you know debt crisis, for instance, and we're saying nope, there isn't one, and and it's, but it's this kind of a different kind of crisis, etc. So you know it's great to have the opportunity uh, to come on a podcast like this to explain that so that um, so that people really understand where we're coming from and 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 how it fits into into the, our overall way of way of thinking about development. Um, but yeah, in all our work, you know, our, our starting point is Agenda 2063. Um, and what we're really trying to do, um, as, as our name says on its tin is reimagine how we get there. Um, thinking about not only kind of very simple kind of, you know, MDG type narratives about how we get there, how we get to that development, but also looking at the experience of, of other countries, you know, from China to UAE to Malaysia to, um, you know, all, all around the world, not just limiting ourselves, um, to, to, to one, to one particular partner or one particular path. Um, the world is so complex. The challenges are so complex. Um, we really need to have new thinking, new ideas. Um, and that's what we're there for. That's what we try and do um, every day um, through our work and, and through our diverse team uh, across the world. So, yeah, thanks again. It's um, It's been great. Yeah, thank you too. Patrick, do you have any last words? Yeah, yeah thanks. Thanks uh, for, for hosting us. I think it's been incredibly uh, enjoyable uh, podcast for us to share our, our thinking and, and most importantly for us to to basically debate what what there is how how Africa needs to to, to position itself in, in in a manner so that to deliver what it should for its citizens. So I think uh, I really appreciate this chance, and I think we can have many more conversations like this to come. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much for joining us. Well, so we've had development reimagined here. Um, it's CEO Hannah Reader and senior trade analyst Patrick Annam. It's been a pleasure to have you speak on Africa-China relationships, trade, debt, and a multi-factor of issues. Um, and they've spoken so eloquently and expertly on these issues. Um, this is the Change Africa podcast, and it's been an exciting conversation again. Hope to catch us another time where we bring African leaders and experts and doers to the front of the biggest African issues and how we solve them. So till another time, thank you very much for joining us.